before Everton won the FA Cup, I think 94, might get it wrong. But Direct correlation there. Rabbit moves to Everton, Everton yeah. win the FA Cup. Yes, yeah, like apart it. from the fact that I hadn't hardly played a game at that point. <laughs> um, but can't claim that Sessions, of course, has created a Real Madrid superstar. <laughs> I'm not going to do that for one Why second. Why would but... you not claim that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm honest. Um, remember sitting on the coach and one of the lads, I can't remember who it was, had put the old classic on Fools, Only Fools and Horses. And of course, Trevor Francis tracksuit from a mush in Shepherd's Bush. So it's part of the theme tune. <laughs> so Trevor turned around to me and said, and everyone's like laughing their heads off as they get off the coach. Trevor went, what, what, what's that there? What, what they're watching? Oh, I've never, and I said, it's only Fools and Horses, Gaffer. Raging now because we're late. I'm not blaming all coach drivers out there, by the way, but they're just the ones that work for us. <laughs> yeah, no, but no names only, mentioned. Yeah, no, and it's only every. It's only literally probably once a season, isn't it? But yeah, it's so when the road works here yesterday, <laughs> yeah. did you not look <laughs> on this 20 miles of the M6, which has been bollarded off? Yeah. Welcome, football fans, to Breaking Lines, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the beautiful game like never before. I'm Gary Rowett, former player and manager, joined by the insightful Dave Carolan, a man with his finger on the pulse of football's beating heart. Together, Dave and I bring you unrivaled insight, context, and a few stories from the trenches. Join us as we dissect the game, break down the plays, and explore the intricate dance between managers, players, fans, and the beautiful game itself. This is Breaking Lines, where the game is more than just a match. So one of the biggest challenges you must have as a manager is bringing new blood into your team across a season. So challenges of bringing in new players who are coming from external sources, you're, you're buying them in or you're loaning them in, or those players that you're going to bring through from the club academy system or through the development pathways that they might have. How, how does that work for you as a manager then? Is, is there a preference or is it literally trying to complete a jigsaw, whatever means necessary? Yeah, I think you're always trying to complete a jigsaw around your budget. I think that's the first thing. So you've got a, a certain amount of money. You have to win as many games as possible, as you possibly can. You've got to play in a certain way, ideally, or you have to pick a style that you think is suitable for those players or for the, the amount of money you've got to spend and, and the club's culture. So, so it's such a big melting pot of different things. And and I think everybody wants to see young players in the team, don't they? Every, every, every fan wants to see one of their own, you know, one of their... One I'm of not going to attempt to sing the song. Come on, Dave, give us a little rendition, but... Is one of them. <laughs> oh, I tell you what. I tell you. Maybe yeah, you can't do All Irish people can sing, can't they? We, we can, yes. <laughs> Normally for cash. <laughs> Just not dance. Um, so I think every club wants academy players as part of their team. I think every manager would like to put academy players into their team because I think it's there's a certain element of kudos now as a manager if you can develop young players and bring them through and maintain the results, whatever you're after, you know, whether it's promotion, surviving in the division, whatever it is. I think it's also massively important to the club. You know, you show a pathway, you know, you show the route of travel for any young player in the club by getting a player out of the academy into the first team regular and playing regularly. Like I think anyone can get a player into the acad- from the academy into the first team, can't they? But can they become a regular and use them all the time, or, or a large percent of your time. That's a 
that's a challenge. So I think, you know, I think it's a big question that everyone has, but biggest challenge sometimes is if you're a team going for promotion, do you have that time to develop the player and, and, you know, and weigh and work with some of those challenges and inconsistencies or do you go for a more seasoned player? So I think it depends on which club you're at. A lot of clubs that are maybe mid-table, that are a development club, they can go with that and and, it, and the, the position in the league isn't as important as their philosophy around creating, nurturing, helping talent and maybe selling talent on as part of their financial aims as well. So when you sit around one of these technical board meetings that we know happen in clubs and there's going to be a discussion around how you're shaping your squad, what players are within the system, within the pathway that are going to be presented to you, almost for you to look at them as a head coach, as an opportunity to integrate them into your squad or give them opportunities versus what do we need to help this team either you know, maintain its, its positive progression or arrest any kind of negativity that might be around the teams and its, its results. How do you have to balance that between... The academy are certainly going to be pushing for opportunities for young players versus potentially the, a recruitment department that thinks we need to go externally. You know, you're, you're weighing up or you're certainly trying to balance those scales, aren't you, between two different elements? Yeah, I think the first thing you have to do is, and, and I think you have to do it quite early, is to assess the talent, you know, in those age groups and, and which players you think could be outstanding, you know? And I think that sometimes we wait too long. I think sometimes we wait for that player to be, say, 20. He's banging them in in the under 23s or whatever that is. And we give him an opportunity in the first team. But sometimes 2020, look, not all the time. There's, there's great examples of late developers and, and players that get exposed a little bit later. But I think sometimes it's better to get them early. It's better to get them at, you know, 15, 16, 17. At that point, you have to look at where they sit in that club structure. You know, you have to look at, here's the first team. Where are some of the gaps below some of those first team players in terms of squad depth? And that's where usually, you know, you can start to piece together and put in some of those players. Um, and I think that then you're just looking for an opportunity, aren't you? I mean, you know, for me, that player has to get exposed to training. And that's the first thing you have to do. So you have to expose that player to training, even if it's in an international break and you say, right, let's get the player up. Let's give him a week with a first team. Let's see how he goes. You know, because it's not an easy thing to train with a first team, is it? At a young age, some kids freeze a little bit. Some kids come in like they're 25 and, and seasoned professionals and, you know, have a, in a nice way, have a lack of respect which is sometimes what you want to see. You know, you want to see them being respectful around the players and how they act. But on the football pitch, you don't want them to be too respectful. You know, I don't want to tackle a first-team player. Yeah, they can't be overawed, can they? Um, They can't be overawed. That's a great point. So so I think that's the first thing. You have to expose them to training. I think after that, from my perspective, and it'd be interesting to see what you think, because it follows a number of different strands. So if a player looks like they've got what it takes to have a chance in the first team at that point. And and I think we've done it reasonably well over the years where you have to form a strong plan, don't you? And stick to that plan, give the lad every chance. So that plan, you know, it's not just, 
you know, what are they, it's exposing them to address, you know, we did that with, with Bogle, didn't we, at, at Derby. We exposed him to a dressing room for six, maybe. For, for exposed him term. in the right way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we let him see what the dressing room was all about, shall I say. The atmosphere, yes. what you have to do after a game as a top professional, what the manager might say, different things that actually that experience of going to three or four away games as well as the home games, actually, you know. With and, all the appropriate safeguarding in place. Yes, yes, not exposed. <laughs> making sure they're not exposed <laughs> to certain things. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, but that plan has a number of things to it, doesn't it? It doesn't just have a technical plan, a tactical plan. You know, it also has a physical development plan, doesn't it? And, you know, how have you found that? Because... I always think that's a dangerous zone, isn't it? Where a player comes out with 23, he, he, he might be doing slightly different work and obviously that's part of the challenge of any club. Can you streamline your work down so that players are used to it when they get there? But let's say you're taking an under 16 who hasn't done loads and loads of S&C. You know, how do you incorporate them into those programmes? And also how do you make sure those programmes are being met when they have to then go back down again? Yeah, well, I think any good... Academy will have an individual development plan in place for the player, which hopefully if they're already showing talent and potential that we're moving them into that kind of emerging talent space, which operates a little bit more independently of either the Academy or the first team. It, it's a shared space where we can accelerate the development of players. But of course, a young player at 16 or whatever, you know, they're nowhere near their physical potential at that point. So we're walking a little bit of a tightrope between the opportunity to get them into the first team and them having all of those great experiences. But there are challenges immediately. For example, they potentially wouldn't have played against 100 kilo odd players who are six foot seven, who when it comes to training time, it doesn't matter who's in front of them. They're going to tackle or they're going to have physical confrontations with those type of players. And if if you're a young player and potentially it's normally forwards who tend to come out early, don't they? They kind of break through a little bit quicker because they probably have that opportunity because the responsibility can be a little bit less. If you make a mistake as a forward player, it tends not to be hugely influential on the result, whereas as a defender, it can be very much the case. So we try and get them up into training, as you say, but they have to learn to adapt to that. And Sometimes that is drip feeding them in, you know, it might be that they get the technical exposure first, don't they? And then before we start chucking them into like full contact training sessions or, or parts of games so that at least they get to almost sense it out and feel their way through it before they're then let loose on full-time training all the time with us. It can sometimes start even earlier as well, can't it? I mean, I remember, I remember when we were at Birmingham and it's been talked about a lot because obviously the quality that the players risen to or the, or the levels that the players risen to. And I remember speaking to the academy at uh, Birmingham and saying, look, can you put a session on for the young players? And I think there was, I think it was like the 15s, 14s, 13s. It was sort of pulling the two or three best players out of those groups. Whereas really it was about one player and, and um, you know, that one player was, was Jude Bellingham. So, um, but there was obviously lots of other good players around him, but it was really to, again, expose him to that first team coaching quite early. And we spoke about little things that, you know, bringing him down into the manager's office before a game to say hello. And, and 
you know, I think the club really, really knew what they were doing at the time. They knew how good he was going to be. I can't claim that Sessions, of course, has created a Real Madrid superstar. <laughs> I'm not going to do that for one Why second. Why would you not claim that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm honest. Um, but the reality is that, you know, that club were thinking at the time, this player is going to be something special. And of course, the challenge with a young player of that quality is keeping him at your club. Because if he moves on at 14, 15, 16, you're going to get a pittance from him in terms of what he's going to be worth down the line. And of course, everyone wants to see those young players get in their team. So, so I think there's different challenges of when you, um, when you bring those players into the team. But I think one of the, I think one of the challenges we've found, certainly, I think with any young player, and you think we've worked with quite a few, haven't we? You know, the likes of Damari Gray at Birmingham, the likes of um, Jaden Bogle at, uh, um, uh, uh, Derby County and, and Max Bird. I think we gave Max his debut, didn't we? Many, many moons ago. Likes of Billy Mitchell, Zach Lovelace, you know, those types of players along along the way. But sometimes they break into your first team, they play games, and then they're in that little period, aren't they, where they've had that little feeling of first team football. And a lot of these clubs, you have fairly small squads of it. So they're now travelling to be on the bench or they're travelling to be part of the squad. And all of a sudden, I remember it. I actually remember it, um, a conversation with one young player's parent. And the, the dad had come to see him and said, he's hardly played football. He's played like 15 minutes football in four weeks. And actually, it wasn't about why is he not in the first team. It wasn't about why is he not starting. It was about he loves football and at the moment. It feels like he's been handcuffed and you can't, and he's not playing. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a really interesting part that people don't see and you get that. So therefore, that player starts to lose a little bit of form when they come on now because they're not sharp, they're not match fit. They're probably a little bit down because a young player will struggle to control his emotions and I'm not playing football. I don't want to go and see the manager because might feel a bit intimidated doing that. Um, I'm just going to get on with it. And suddenly, before you know it, that player could have hardly played any football in a six-month period and and it's a really difficult balance for, for most clubs, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, you make a great point there about players transitioning into the first team and, of course, that's where they want to be. They want to be sat on the bench with a chance of going on the pitch if they're not. I don't think any young kid is expecting to start every game. They know what the pathway is going to be, but they want to be around it. But then they also need that opportunity to learn and develop by by playing games. And it's hard when they're traveling all the time. Then if they're playing a 21 game on a Monday or on a Tuesday, they actually lose a lot of training time. So their opportunity to develop and really start to improve and, and really grasp that opportunity to get up to the level is actually diminished by the fact that if you're operating a small squad and they have opportunity, that actually you inhibit their development rather than actually enhance it. I think I, I remember my own experience. I remember moving from Cambridge to Everton as a, um, I think I was 19 years old, around the time that it was a season before Everton won the FA Cup, I think, 94. Or might I get it wrong. But Direct correlation there. Rabbit moves to Everton. Everton yeah, win their pick up. Yeah, like so apart from the fact that I hadn't hardly played a game at that point. <laughs> um, but, you know, but if I look at that, I remember going from Cambridge where I'd played nearly 100 games by the time I was 19. You know, I made my debut at 17. So, and then going to Cambridge and all, and I think I played sort of four times in 18 months. But I remember, why am I not playing? 
that like I, I just I couldn't grasp it at that time. I couldn't. It's only when you look back you think you're 19, you idiot. You know, what I mean, you've gone from Cambridge to a massive club in Everton, and you know you're not playing because a you're probably not good enough at the moment, but b you know there's look at some of the players that are ahead of you. Realistically, you you know you don't understand that as a young player. You just think I've played lots of football. Someone thinks I'm good enough to play at the next level or the next two levels up, and I'm not getting an opportunity. And I can remember feeling really frustrated. You know, I mean, it w- I was lucky at the time because back in the and it's a good argument for reserve team football or something that resembles that because you used to play reserve games sometimes at weekends or in the week. If you didn't play a reserve game at the weekend, they had an A-team, so a lot of the young players would play in the A-team. I remember playing Man United with all their class of 92 virtually team played in that. So it was almost a young reserves team or an under-23s team or whatever that would be. So you played regular football, but it wasn't the same. And and I think that is a real challenge for any young player because, you know, like we said, players need game time, don't they? It's not easy. Most managers don't intentionally want to not give the player game time. Usually it's, oh, can I trust him enough in a big game? You know, you've got to be an outstanding player, haven't you, at, at 17, 18, to be able to be chucked into a massive game and start start from the beginning. You see some really good examples of that, but it's a tough test. for, And, and of course, all the fans, and I understand it, all the fans are, oh, why is he not playing? He's just got to chuck him in. And you think it's not quite that simple, is it? It's really not that simple because you've got to drop a senior player who's probably been brilliant for 200 games for you or whatever um, and put a young player in. So I think there's also an element of the player has to be good enough to not make the team weaker, of course, are going to make mistakes. And that's a real skill that some managers are very, very good at. Yeah, it's certainly hard to balance that whole development cycle isn't it they need game time they need development time they need training time and all the time while they're doing all of this on our side we're trying to develop them physically not just for the short term but for their career if they're 16 or 17 you know they've still got many many years of development work that they need to do and one of the real challenges i've found is once you've get, you get players in around that first team area they're okay for the first few months of they'll do whatever you ask. They'll do whatever they can in order to stick around it and almost be a good egg and they'll do what they're told. And within a year, some of them fall off that wagon quite quickly. You know, suddenly the new contract arrives, the the feeling that they've got a first team squad number and that suddenly starts to get lower and lower as they start asking for a better and better number. And suddenly their impetus to keep developing and stay on that pathway to a long career where they've built all of the kind of physical processes and and attributes that they're going to need. Of course, we know from experience what they're going to have to do and what they're going to experience along the way. But some of them just don't buy into it. That whole, you need to do the work now for for later. Well, I think that's the other challenge, isn't it? That, you know, you hear a lot of managers say, and I get it where they'll say, now, I'm not chucking him in at the moment for the benefit of him, the player. You know, it's for his own development. I don't want to put him under pressure too soon. And I get that. I mean, as a player, you want to be put under pressure because that's the challenge. And that's where you see whether you can rise to the challenge or not rise to the challenge as, as a young player. And of course, some players need multiple opportunities to do that. They can't just do it the first time. Um, but I think it's a, 
I think it's a very good point you make that a young player can come into a team, do really well. And then all of a sudden, you know, that hunger, that drive, that desire to, to make that debut and, and make their place in the team. Suddenly now you've probably, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, but you've probably now got an agent pushing for a new deal for the player. You've probably got other clubs now trying to buy the player or see the player or meet the player to try and sign them because that's what goes, we all know what goes on in football. Absolutely. So there actually can become from that early introduction to the team, you, you as a manager, you give that player the opportunity, you get lauded for that and the player shows what he's capable of and it looks great. And then suddenly within six months, you can have a real problem on your hands sometimes as well. And it's all part and parcel of football, of course, but you know, maybe what some people don't see is that if a young player maybe loses a little bit of form, sometimes there can be extenuating circumstances. There can be external factors that maybe don't help that, you know, people wanting them to move on quickly to the next big club or, you know, want to make a lot of money quickly because, you know, a lot of these kids come from areas where it's an opportunity, isn't it, to, to make some serious money for their families. And so, yeah, so it's a really difficult balance, I think. And, you know, the player that's young, talented, but just has a great mentality, I think, is often the one that will keep rising, isn't it? You know, and uh, do you think do you think clubs, I know some clubs do it, and I'd imagine a lot of Premier League clubs do it, but I think we spoke about it before about, and, and we actually did it at one of the clubs quite a while ago. Do you need that bridge? Do you need the bridge between the academy player coming into the first team as someone who monitors those players from a game time performance, mental, like a, you know, emotional support to make sure the player's not getting frustrated and not playing to managing the expectations in the gym and just staying on top of them. Cause, cause you can always slip between the net a little bit as a young player, can't you? Between the first team and the 23s and sort of end up nowhere. Yeah. It's certainly a real challenge to ensure that they're getting the work done. And as we've already said about getting the game time, but they also need someone who's a good ear, um, a good shoulder to cry on and such that, they can vent their frustrations without it necessarily getting to the manager's door. Um, and I think good coaches, essentially at the first team level, can help with that transition. And academies, I think, have been really, really good at you know making sure they've got touch points with these players to ensure that the transition up for them. They're normally leaving behind like teammates and, and friends and disappearing off to this other world. It's easy to kind of romanticize about, you know, going into the first team and it's all, it's all easy. But if you're 16 and you're suddenly now in a dressing room with 25-year-olds or 30-year-olds, like, it's a generational thing, isn't it? The music's different. The banter's certainly very, very different, you know. I've tried to learn street culture. Yourself. I've Speak tried yourself, to learn mate. street culture over the years, you know. I've, I've got many different forms of R&B and drill and grind or whatever it is the music Gee, well, where are you going with this um, I don't know I really don't know I'm lost <laughs> do you think I'm going to help you out here do you think that's where um, do you think that's where a lot of the bigger clubs now are starting to have a senior player slash coach with the under 23s aren't they I think Tom Huddleston is at Man United isn't he yeah Tom Huddleston um, did it. I think Paul McShane, Paul McShane did it before yeah. that at Man United Bradley Johnson might be doing it at Derby or, or or certainly in a coaching role. But I think a lot more clubs are having these senior players because, you know, my, my take on it is they want them to help those players understand what it takes off the pitch as well as on the pitch. And maybe that's a, a nod to the fact that we are losing some of those types of characters or we are maybe losing 
or, or maybe not losing, but we're getting so many other distractions along the way for a young footballer, aren't we, that can drag them away from doing what it takes to be the best footballer they can be. So do you think that's why a lot of these clubs are doing it? And do you think more clubs should do that? I, I think it's a throwback to what we've lost from the game when we lost reserve team football, Yeah, which was the perfect transition for a youth team player to the first team was the reserves. And under-21 football, I think, has been great to keep a lot of young players in the system for a little bit longer. But as you alluded to at the very start, we don't see many late developers coming through at 2021 that are suddenly now, we, we, we've now seen them. Oh, oh suddenly at 20s, he's made his way. With those kind of senior players who are playing in the 21s, they're offend- effectively the old reserve player who used to guide you on the pitch and like, don't worry about what the, uh, the coach is saying to you. This is what would be required at, at kind of first team level. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, and um, you know, what I would say also is if any of the listeners in the build up to Christmas who w- w- are really looking for extra inspiration for a present than, than uh, Dave Carolan's R&B and Grind um, CD is out. Um, when, when is it out on sale, Dave? Is it in the next couple of days? Yeah, it's out on the 22nd. Yeah, it's a more of an EP than an album this year. Uh, it will be available on vinyl and also uh, cassette. <laughs> so one of the greatest phrases we hear uh, from managers, from players after games is somewhere insert name of ground is a tough place to go is that true or is just everywhere a tough place to go what about away games why as a manager are they perceived as different even though it's essentially the same pitch the same players just playing in a different piece of grass yeah look I think it's that those age old questions that you know we've been we've been saying the same things for 20 30 years haven't we so is anywhere Tougher than anywhere else to go. I think some, I think some grounds, for some reason, feel tougher. Is that because as a manager, as a player, or as a club, you never seem to win at those grounds? And, you know, the, the local press always come up with the stats, don't they? Haven't won in 35 years at this ground. So straight away you're going, oh, God. It's a bogey ground. It's a bogey club and a bogey ground. Like, I didn't realise it was, but now it is. So... So, yeah, I think some of those are just kind of things that people say in the build-up to to, um, to games. I think some ground you know, let's take an example. This is not, you know, this is just off the top of my head. Let's take somewhere like Ellen Road. You know, tough, tough place to go, isn't it? Like, just just not, and, and actually, we've had quite good results there over the years, but just... A so, tough, therefore, it's not a tough place to go. No, but, no, but, but just when the atmosphere ramps up, you know, I can remember going there as a player... With Derby, I can remember going 3-0 up after 25 minutes of thinking, we're cruising. We're absolutely cruising. And they scored a goal just before half-time. I think it was Harry Kuhl and the atmosphere, the roof went off, you know, and you're literally thinking, oh my God, this second half's going to be. So so there are places that can create atmospheres that without doubt are bigger and louder and more raucous than other places. You know, that that's just a fact, isn't it? But... At the same time, those places sometimes can also work against the home team as well. So there's no doubt that there is such a thing as a tough place to go. But of course, it depends on that team's form. It depends on that team's 
current position. It depends on what's going on at the time. I mean, it makes me chuckle in some ways. I understand why people say, but one of the things that us managers say sometimes is, you know, when you want to send a clear message out to the fans and the players that we're going to just do what we do and we're going to be brilliant at it. And people say we approach every game the same way. And I think, well, you can't really, can you? It's just not a, you just can't because if you approach every game the same way, you're going to miss out on some key things that happen in games. If I'm going to play a team that have won their last 10 home games, you know what's coming. You know, there's a a likelihood is that that team starts really quick, really early. So you have to be ready for that. You might have to, you know, you might have to meet them head on and you might have to try and quell that early tide that way or that early pressure. You might have to keep the ball and you might have to nullify their pressure that way. You might actually have to let them come on. So you think back to when we played against, and this is not me saying this because they battered my trainers. As we, as we, as, <laughs> what's your mate's name again? Scotty. Scotty, sorry, Scotty. It's not, it's not about you this time. But anyway, <laughs> but but it's little things. like We went to Forest, didn't we? It was a game just before COVID for Millwall, and we knew Forest would come on to you down the right-hand side and would be quite open. So one of the tactics in that game is we'd let them come at us down that side and we'd actually, our number 10 would peel out into that channel, which I think was um, was Benno at the time. Yeah. So we allowed them to come onto us purposely because we knew that maybe we could hit them in certain ways. So what I'm saying is, I'm not talking about that game in particular, but I'm saying there are different ways to approach away game. And I don't think that you can just go there and play exact. Maybe if you're Man City or if you're Liverpool, but I even think those teams acute enough and clever enough to think, okay, how, what are the opposition going to do? It's their home game, so usually they have to make the running. So therefore, there's key areas and key ways that you can actually so the, the other team. Are these pressure points that you would identify? So maybe target a crowd, maybe target a tactic, target a player, you know, an influential player where you suddenly might try and get, get at him or, you know, dominate that player early. So... As such, you set your marker down for the day. Yeah, I think it's like I said, I think you have to assess what the team's good at. You know, I I think, let's say if teams were coming to Millwall where the expectation is we're going to be very direct early on in the game and we're going to put the teams on, because that was something that you could do to good effect. You know, in the first few seasons there, that was something that we did really, really well. Well, teams started then coming to the den and trying to pass the ball to death early on so that you can't do it. If you haven't got the ball, it's very difficult to put the opposition under pressure. And and there's different ways that people will try to do that. You know, if you go to a place, I'm thinking back to when we played against Derby for Birmingham, and I think they were under a little bit of, I think it was Paul Clement was the manager at the time. I think they were under a little bit of a bad runner form. Not too bad, I don't think, but a little bit of of a poor runner form. And you knew that if you could just get through those, and again, I know these sound a little bit cliche, but if you just get through those first 20 minutes, so you knew you were going to have to defend, you knew you were going to have to dig in, you knew they were a good team technically, so you weren't going to have much of the ball. And so you had to ride a few of those moments early on, but defend with real discipline and, and energy, you know? So, and I think when you get through those first 20 minutes, if a team's in a poor runner form, you know that the home foot fans are going to just start to get a little bit edgy. You know what it's like when you're sitting against a team and someone will make a poor pass because all of a sudden there's not that many options to them and one ball goes out. You're waiting for that first pass to get misplaced out of play, aren't you? And the crowd start groaning. This could be any any 
away game, the crowd start groaning and in your head you think, got them, we've got them. And, you, and you know, if you can just see through five or six of those moments and then you can feel, and as a away team, you can feel the game starts coming to you, starts coming back to you and those, those spaces start to open up and, you know, you start to sense those opportunities. And I remember back to that day, you know, we didn't play brilliantly for the first 20, 25 minutes. We score a goal. And it, the game is completely different from that point on. And there is, an, you know, there is certainly an effect at times with that fan feeling at the time. Alternatively, you can go to a place where they've won 10 on the spin and there's a little bit of you thinking, oh, it's going to be tough today. That's a tough place to go. They're in great form. The players maybe turn up at the game and are thinking, big stadium big club, you know, maybe a relegated club that probably shouldn't be in the division. And even the players start to think, oh, it's going to be a tough one. And you can see that in the performance as well, can't you? So, so I think there's definitely, you know, circumstances around how you approach an away game differently to a home game. So if everywhere is kind of potentially tough place to go, there's going to be better times to play some of the, the tougher gigs as such a an Elland Road when they're not doing as well, an Aston Villa when they're not doing as well, where those traditionally really strong clubs with really big fan bases who are raucous, you just know, well, they're not going to be as up for it potentially as they would be. And actually, can you use those circumstances to almost flip a crowd in your favour? So essentially, they become a 12th man for you as opposed to becoming their own team's 12th man. Yeah, I think it's difficult to, I think the only way you can do that is to perform well and to put the crowd into that kind of malaise where they see their own team not doing enough or not performing well enough. And I think and there's different ways of doing that. I think definitely away from home, you have to be a little bit braver at times, don't you? Because just in general, your team ends up playing five or 10 yards deeper. Just not not because you've worked on that, not because you you want that to happen, but because often the home team make the running and a lot of times as a team, you know, your team just ends up feeling like they've got to protect something a tiny bit. The best performances we've ever had is when the team's got that little bit of bravery on the ball, haven't they? And they take they can take the sting out of anything the opposition doing. And they can start to actually feel there's less I suppose in an answer to your question, I suppose what you can do is you can use the fact there's not 20,000 fans there and there's less pressure at times. So for an away team at times, you can actually go to the match looking forward to those matches because there's a little bit less scrutiny and, and, and a little bit less pressure. And of course, you know, just as brilliant as the home fans are, the away fans travel, you know, the clubs that we've been at, the away fans have travelled in great numbers. And some of those away games, I mean, I remember, you know, another one, Birmingham versus Fulham. Fulham. Yeah, Birmingham versus Fulham, I think. You know, you look at a crazy fans, night. 4,000 <laughs> 4, fans there, weren't there, in that yeah. away end. And, and they always seen Fulham used to quite happy to let a lot of away fans, a lot of fans enjoyed it, didn't they? Because they'd go down the old boat, down the Thames, a party boat, wouldn't they? And they'd, <laughs> they'd, turn, they'd rock up at the, the game, probably a little bit. I think that probably fueled the atmosphere a little uh, bit more, didn't it? <laughs> fueled the atmosphere, shall we say. And, um, but there was great followings and, and, you know, you put a good performance in away from home. Sometimes those away games feel more special than the home ones. I don't know why. They just do, don't they? Just just for different reasons. I'm not saying they're 
any better than winning at home because of course you want to win in front of your home fans but it does seem to be the element of it's tougher to win away from home and therefore um, you know in front of four or five fans certainly that day we did, didn't we? I think we beat them. What did we beat them? 5-2 or 5-2, I think it was. 5-2 yeah, or something, yeah. It was, yeah so. it, was a, it was a great away performance. And I suppose that was a classic one of the away fans who, for some reason, always seem to be a little bit more raucous when they're away from their home patch. They almost seem to be sometimes a little bit more forgiving of performances if they don't go as well than a home team, you know, because I suppose they're going to enemy territory and they're, they're supporting their guys through thick and thin. Although at the same time, if you're you're in a poor run of form or you're not at a good performance, they can let you know double as well, though. Yeah, and sometimes those away games are harder as a manager than the home games because usually when there's a lot of people in the stadium, you might get a small portion of the fans not overly happy, and that can be anywhere you're at, any club. You know, every club we've had, we've had, we've had great moments where the fans... Um, we've had adulation winning games and you have to accept there's two sides to every coin. And if your team's not doing well and you've paid your money to go and watch the game and you might have t- taken your two kids and it's cost you, I don't know, close to 100 quid or whatever it is and you see a poor performance, of course, there's going to be frustration. Of course, you're going to be disappointed. And and I think sometimes in those games, you know, you only got to get two or three people to sing and everyone's close together, everyone's there, don't they? So it becomes a little bit tribal and... and and I also, I think we all also understand that's the right of every football fan to to do whatever they want, you know. So, um, so yeah, there's, it's it's a funny one away games. I think that we've also had away games where you know you're staying at a hotel, you're all chilled out, you're relaxing, you, you know, I've had all your meetings, and then you set off, and the coach driver says, "Yeah, it's only twenty five minutes." Oh. So you know what's coming, don't you? So it's only twenty five <laughs> minutes. So okay, are you sure? Yeah. All right, have you checked? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, 25 minutes. And all of a sudden, you get stuck in traffic and you're thinking, right, I am raging. I am raging now because we're late. I'm not blaming all coach drivers out there, by the way, but they're just the ones that work for us. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's no only, names mentioned. Yeah, no, and it's only every, it's only literally probably once a season, isn't it? But yeah, it's the Wend Roadworks here yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Did you not look? On those 20 miles of the M6, which has been bollarded off. Yeah. But, you know, so, so you know, you get some journeys like that, that, you know, you're turning up late, you know, it's a tough game. You're thinking, oh my God, this is just not what we need. And, it, and sometimes, you know, some of those are your best performances, but there can be so, so many things that go into an away day, can't there? And, and you know, certainly when it all comes together nicely and you, you, you roll away with a three points and you've got a three or four hour journey, that journey doesn't half feel better. And, and, and that's why it's so nice sometimes, isn't it? Because you also know the fans have got a horrible journey home. You know, probably going to get back two or three o'clock in the morning and have to get up for work the next morning. So at the very least, they've got uh, a few stories, I'm sure, or or three points to uh, to cheer about. Well, certainly travel to away games has always been an interesting thing, hasn't it? You know, we've gone planes, trains, automobiles, buses, Practically every every form of uh, transport we could potentially take, we've taken to our games. But um, is there a way you'd like to get to games? Like we've done trains yeah, I love, and I love flying. Unfortunately, we haven't been at any club that could afford to do it. So. I think we had about two at Stoke, I think. We, we had a flight to Norwich, which yeah, was perfect actually, for me, to be fair. Yeah. Oh, you love that, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I think you organised. Well, actually, because you have done a lot of the away travel, haven't you, as well? The logistic or yes. assisted... Yeah. 
on the logistical side, shall we say. So, yeah, it's no surprise that that was a flight to Norwich, was it? But you weren't flying back, so that didn't really help you too Well, much, I think, it? to be fair, when we were at Stoke, Claire Last, who was organising all of the travel at all the hotels that year, was also from Norwich. <laughs> so I think it might have been a, a double-pronged attack, that one. And she was great, wasn't she, Claire? So, I mean, and that, you know, that organisation, I think, and, and I mean, certainly that period, having, you know, being able to do that a couple of times, that was, you felt privileged, didn't you, to be able to, you know, it was a quick drive up to Manchester Airport, private, private aircraft, jump on, straight to, there's a lot of controversy around that at the moment, isn't there, actually, but with, um, yeah. you know, with, with a sort of, you know, helping the environment and everything. So, but it is probably... The easiest, let's just say the easiest. I'm not going to go into any anything else, but it's the easiest way to get to a game. And I think certainly if you're a club that you can fly 15 times a year and that's part of just what you've done over the years, that's a massive advantage. If you're, I don't know, if you're a Plymouth and you, you have to go everywhere by, I'm not saying they do, but let's say you have to go everywhere by coach, every away game is a long, long way away and it or the majority of away games a pretty decent travel. So, and there's no way around it. You know, you might be able to get the train, um, but if you can't get, but the train's not that easy either, is it, for the players? Because you jump, I'm not expecting anyone to feel sorry for us here, by the way. Um, but the train's not <laughs> what easy. What was us? Yeah, with because a private well, get, transport. Well, let's say getting out of London, you know, so by the time you've got out of London, you know, to a train station, up to one of the major train routes out, onto and waited around, onto another, you know, whichever way you look at it, whichever way you do it, you're talking about, five, six, seven hours on a Friday. Um, and for a player to feel at their best on a Saturday is a challenge, you know, and it's something you get used to and it's something that is part and parcel of, of any sport, I think, travelling to an away game. But no, Look, I was at Norwich for 10 years out in the regions, you know. <laughs> it was an hour to get, uh, as some people would say, it was an hour to get to civilization. you know. Just to get out of the county was like 45 minutes to an hour. And that was just to get over the border. And then you kind of headed off to whatever the nearest game was. So um, I, I think certainly travel on away games is just part and parcel of it, isn't it? You know, you, you whatever club you're at, you kind of budget that into your whole logistics, your whole time, don't you? And you just get used to it, don't you? And I think some players actually, some players enjoy it, don't they? Players quite enjoy it. I've, I've, you know, I used to quite enjoy it as a player, I think, because you'd turn up for training, you'd, you'd rock up, off to onto the coach or whatever. You sit down. Some of the lads would have some of the lads would play cards, wouldn't they? Um, some of the lads would play cards all the way. Some of the staff, you know, when we were, well, we I think at Birmingham, we had about five, four of us that used to play cards, and it was one of the most exciting parts of the week. Someone taking the best off, part of the week, taking <laughs> taking money off Summers and and a few of the other the lads. But um, yeah, but yeah, but you know, and then you see the players. You know, nowadays all the coaches are pretty well. Stacked up, aren't they? Some of the players will be on the whatever the console is, or may, maybe even listening to one of your um, one of your compilation uh, mixes. Uh, one of my compilation mixes. See previous <laughs> episodes of this to find out all about DC's EP. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the coaches nowadays just worlds apart. Like when we travel to games now, like it's a luxury coach. There's none of these like all the seats facing the same way. Uh, one VCR at the front. Who was bringing this week's film? And uh, everybody at the back trying to look at a 14-inch TV that was at the front of the bus. That's what almost I started with at Norwich, whereas now it's got a full kitchen, double oven, microwave, coffee machine, LED lighting, and a lounge at the back. 
That's crazy, isn't it? it, it I can remember, I can remember a few incidents. So I can remember going to, going to the second leg of the playoffs with Burton, and just as we were setting off, coach had either broke down or it had a flat tire. And you know that moment as a manager, you're just thinking, oh, why me? Why this time? You know, so we're having to wait around, wait around an hour for a replacement coach to come. You know, the traffic's starting to build. I think it took us about nine hours to get down to South End on a on a Friday <laughs> for a Saturday game, and you 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 need to win to get to Wembley. You know, oh, fa- God. Fa- fa- thankfully we did. But you know, and and sometimes they build a little bit of a story for the players around the game, and if the players take it the right way, then um you know then it, then it's great. I also remember another time and. It was when I played at Birmingham under Trevor Francis, God rest his soul. He was a great guy, Trevor. And, you know, but he was, he liked the finer things in life, you know. So so um, I remember sitting on the coach and one of the lads, I can't remember who it was, had put the old classic on Falls, Only Falls and Horses. And of course, Trevor Francis tracksuit from a mush and shepherd's bush. So it's part of the theme <laughs> tune. So Trevor turned around to me and said, and everyone's like laughing their heads off as they get off the coach. Trevor went, what, what, what's that there? What, what they're watching? Oh, I've never, and I said, it's only fools and horses, Gaffer. I didn't want to say he's obviously in the, and he went, oh, I've never, never seen it. I said, well, you're in the theme tune, but you're actually part <laughs> of the theme tune. He said, oh, I've never seen it. And I thought, wow, he's never watched only fools and horses, but. But yeah, that that's, that sticks in my mind. There's a few other things stick in my mind. He could, he could have done them for royalties, surely. He should be getting paid for every time he yeah, gets mentioned. I think he probably was. <laughs> he was probably just pulling my leg a little bit. First but. million pound footballer, also with a million pounds in royalties. There you, there you go. He probably made as much from that as he did <laughs> football. So so yeah, but lo- lo- lovely, lovely guy. Yeah, a few, I can remember a few. I can't tell a few of the stories, but I remember a few other stories where, you know, players have asked to, to leave games and, uh, you know, from a management perspective, We've not allowed them to. Because, again, there was always that rule, wasn't there? For the discipline of a team and the respect of a team, you know, we're organising travel, we're organising certain things. And, you know, what is it? You know, most most clubs you're at, it's like by Thursday after training, you have to let a member of staff or a designated member of staff, like someone like yourself, and say, you have to let Dave know that you're not coming back on the the team coach. Because, of course, where do you draw the line? You know, you could lose a game 4-0, and look around on a coach and there's 20 players missing. It's not, that's not what the team's about, is it? That's not what, but of course, people live in different areas and have family in different areas. So from time to time, some of the players would stay where the away game is um, and some of the staff would do the same. But it's just that out of a respect that you would let know, you know. So we've had a few, yeah, we've had a few of those incidents as well. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that's really changed. It used to be we all travel together, we all come home together and you get back to the stadium and you go from there. And there was literally you needed to have somebody or even yourself getting married and you might be allowed off the coach after the game to not travel back. Or at least then you'd travel to a a services or some pickup point and you'd leave from there. But essentially everyone would leave. Nowadays, we've got lots of players at clubs who have got a limousine or some kind of other form of private transport that's picking them up straight from the game and driving them home quicker because the players can afford it and they want to be back quicker to go and do whatever else they want to do in their lives uh, at separate times. And you can also argue at times, as frustrating as that can be, you know, that's actually better preparation for the players sometimes, isn't it? To, to get home an hour quicker um, or to miss some of the traffic that you might get in on a coach or whatever that is. So so I think there's, there's certainly 
a different debate in there. But you, you're right, the game has changed in that sense. You know, players might go home with a family or players might go, whereas before it was, you're on the coach, win, lose or draw, and you're going back to the ground or whatever that is, you know. And um, there was something good about that, but also, you know, I understand that away travel certainly moves on. Thanks for listening in to Breaking Lines this time. A quick review of today's episode. Today we looked at the difficulties that face staff while aiming to integrate outstanding young talented players into the first team environment. While the benefits are potentially huge, many precarious pitfalls await. So it's a real difficult balance to strike between opportunity and risk. But with good planning and good people looking out for those young players in the longer term, the crowd are always willing to back one of their own. And as we've just heard, going to an away fixture backed by a vociferous set of travelling fans can be some of the most memorable in a season. Yet each fixture provides unique challenges that can be very different to home games. And the shared experiences on the coach home after a great win make the miles melt away. That's it for today's show. Please subscribe to us on your preferred podcast provider and don't forget to give us a like and a review too. Look out for the next episode soon.